Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text this morning comes from Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 2, as we are moving through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew this Advent season. So we'll hear Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for what you revealed of old through general revelation and by the special revelation of your word. And now as we have your word before us, we ask that your spirit might speak through it so that we may know indeed who is the Christ. Amen. I'm sorry, is it just me or is it like, is my voice sounding echoey and everything? Okay, great, I'm, it's just, it's just me. Okay. Well, like so many of my mental disabilities, uh, just me. Okay, so having, having uh, thrown everybody off track, let's go back to the text. Uh, there is a question that the wise men ask when they come to... Herod when they come to Judah, and I'm contractually bound to point out from this text that we don't in fact know uh, how many kings there were. Traditionally, we say three kings because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but of course, uh, as you know, people can carry more than one gift at a time, or they could distribute those gifts amongst more people, and so we sing we three kings because it's the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and it works out really well for the song. And they may or may not actually have been kings because the Greek word is magi, and that probably just means magicians, but we don't want to say that because we're Christians. So instead we say wise men are kings. <laughs> that wasn't a joke. This is literally what's in every Bible commentary. Um, but, but I did ask that we could sing that hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are, because because it actually does all the work that a sermon should do and then lets the preacher off the hook for preaching the redemptive historical message that is there uh, taken from looking at the, the three gifts of the wise men. 
because it's a goat gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and takes us from the, from the fall to the resurrection through the incarnation of our Lord and Savior. So I don't have to talk about that, which is good, because that's not really the driving question of the text. The driving question of the text is what the wise men of indeterminate number ask, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? In other words, where is the Christ? And they're asking where the Christ is because they don't know who the Christ is. And that's a strange question because they've come to Herod who is literally the king of the Jews, the king of Judah. And so they ask the question, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Uh, Where is the Christ? Because it's clear that this is not the Christ. This is not the Christ. And he's not the Christ for some fairly obvious reasons, but we need to understand the central reason that Herod is not the Christ, that he is not the true king of the Jews. It's not just that he does not happen to be, right? We know who who the Christ is, because a lot of you uh, have already read the Bible, and we know that Jesus has already been born in Bethlehem in a stable, as Matthew has told us earlier on in Matthew chapter 1. So we know that, but they ask the question, the reason this is a question is in the text, is is because Herod is clearly the wrong kind of king. He's the wrong kind of king. He cannot be king of the Jews. He cannot be the Christ because he is the wrong kind of the king, which raises the question, which really is what is driving the 12 verses which are before us this morning, and it is this, it is very simply, who is the Christ? What kind of king is the Christ? And as we'll see, the Christ is king of a spiritual people, and therefore, therefore, you are obligated to come and worship the king. The Christ is not Herod. Herod cannot be the Christ. He cannot be the king of the Jews because Herod is a worldly king, and the Christ is not a worldly king. Herod is an extremely worldly king. Again, they come to him. They come, they come to the capital of Judea, to Judah, to Jerusalem, rather, in Judea, and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod doesn't say, me. <laughs> Which is, again, literally, that's his job. Like, that's what it says on his office door. Or the ancient Palestinian equivalent thereof. He is the king of the Jews, but he knows he's not. He knows he's not because, one, he wasn't born king of the Jews. He, he, he seized the throne through violence, through warfare. He, 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 he was a strong man who used his power to gain his position through bloodshed. He also, interestingly, is not really a Jew. He converted to, Jude- to Judaism, but he was born as an Idumean, which is uh, a dis- from the land of Edom, which is just next to uh, Judah, but that's the descendants of the sons of Esau, the Edomites. So he's from the wrong family, he's from the wrong nation, he cannot really be the king of the Jews, and neither then can his sons. His sons cannot be either. Uh, th- towards the end of chapter 2, Herod will be dead and his, one of his sons will have taken over, Archelaus, but this cannot be king of the Jews either. Because it's, and it's not just because of their origin, 
not just because they achieved the throne through illegitimate means. It's because of the kind of king that Herod is. Herod is a king who uses worldly wisdom. He's very clever. He's wise. He's wise, but he's wise in a completely worldly sense. Uh, he's, the situation comes to him, the situation that's presented to him, the problem that's created, in a sense, by these wise men is that now there is a Christ. There is the true king of the Jews who has been born. And he's not Herod. He's been born in Bethlehem of Judea. And again, problem, because that means that means that there is a competing power source. There is somebody who can challenge Herod, or at least challenge Herod's line, for the throne, who can claim legitimacy, right? And so Herod asks, summons the wise men after he talks to the chief priests and scribes and says, okay, what's the deal here? Uh, is, is this for real? Uh, that's not, okay, that's not in the text, but that's, that's what he's getting at. Is that he's, when he says, what is going on? And they say, well, yeah, the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And notice the chief priests and scribes don't say, well, you're the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the king of the Jews. They don't even say that. They say the Christ is to be born in Judea, in Bethlehem of Judea. And so when he calls the wise men, Herod calls the wise men to him, and he says, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's lying. And we know he's lying because in verse 16, when this plan doesn't work out, he intends to kill and does kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who are two years old and under. I just, I don't know, maybe I'm just too old. I'm just tired. This is the kings we have today. These are the people we follow. They're clever, they're wise, they're powerful, they manipulate, and they kill. This is a kind of king. Here it is. These are the kind of kings we've always had. There's the kinds of kings who have ruled over humanity since the garden and who rule over us today. The kind of people we vote for, the kind of people we admire because they're wise. They do what's necessary to hold on to power, to keep other people from getting ahead. It works. Herod is not a legitimate king, not by a long shot. He has no right to the throne in Judea, even even though it's been given to him by the Romans, who are really the ones who are running the show. Herod is what is called a vassal king. That is, he's somebody who has control over a certain territory, a certain piece of land, and he is the king in that area. His word goes. But 
but he's under, of course, the greater control of the Roman Empire. That's how empires work. And so he has the power. He has the position. He knows how to hold on to it. He knows how to manipulate the Romans to get what he wants. He knows how to put his sons in positions of power. He knows so that they can succeed him. He'll, his family will hold on to this position for some years, even after he's gone. He is successful, but he's successful in a worldly way, in the ways of this world, which is temporary and passing away because it's corrupted and wicked. The wise men, the wise men came to Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, to find its king. Its king, who, who should be the Christ, but instead they found only a worldly king. And so the Christ is not a worldly king. The Christ instead, as Micah points out, the prophecy from Micah, which is where verse 6 comes from, the prophecy in Micah reminds us, tells us, underscores for us that the Christ is the shepherd of a spiritual people. He's to be born they, the, the chief priests and scribes of the people tell Herod in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And within the context of the Old Testament, because Micah is in the Old Testament, uh, it's clearly telling us, clearly a reminder to us of something we already know from, the, from, from Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is that the, the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be a descendant of King David. And that's the, the great promise that God made to David and then is unfolded or clarified in a number of ways after David's lifetime and is touched on again and again in the prophets who, who come after David, Micah, not the least amongst them. But uh, he, is, he is to be like David, and the focus here is on being a king but even as a king, David was a shepherd. Uh, it's interesting, even in his lifetime, he was called that. We all, most of us, I hope, uh, know the story of David and Goliath because David was a little shepherd boy and the sling and the stones and all that. Okay, we know that. Um, but, but he was also, even as king, he was a shepherd. That wasn't just his day job before he got into the king business. Uh, his, they, they told him when, when he was, when the tribes of Judah and Israel called him, called David to be their king after the death of Saul. Now we have to anoint you. You're clearly the, 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 right, the, right, the rightful, excuse me, the rightful successor. They told David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, you shall be, and the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So being king is being shepherd, at least as far as David is concerned, is to be a shepherd, a guide to the people and to gather them together. And that's the theme that is picked up on, especially in the prophecy of Micah chapter 5. And so they quote, and so that's why the chief priests and scribes quote it here, from, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And what I want to do now is read from the broader context of Micah chapter 5. And it's important to do that because 
we, we need to understand, it's important to understand that in the Bible, when a verse is quoted, it's not just random verses pulled out of nowhere. Uh, this, this, oh, look, this verse is a convenient excuse uh, to build our story upon or, or, or to prove that a prophecy has occurred. There's a context in which it occurs that gives us a greater understanding as to what's going on and why that verse here. And this is, and Micah is, is one of what we call the minor prophets. And that's, and, and, and look, I'm, I'm with you. The minor prophets are kind of hard to read, and except for Jonah, which is like the easy one. Uh, but the rest of them, they're kind of hard to read, and it gets confusing, and it's easy to get lost. And, and so, but I, I, I want to read nine verses out of Micah chapter 5 so we can see where this prophecy comes from. And I want to point especially to verses 7 and 8. But the first five verses are important. The verses 7 and 8 also draw out something important. And not, not that any of them are unimportant because it's all the Word of God, but, 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 but just, but, 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 don't get confused. Okay. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Now, muster, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver." Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Now, what's going on in Micah chapter 5? First, as we really understand that what the chief priests and scribes said was a little bit of a paraphrase of Micah chapter 5, but there's more to it than just, than just the birthplace of Jesus that's being prophesied in this text. And it's in the reference to the remnant, the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Judah. Because, of course, by the time of the birth of Jesus, approximately 2,000 years ago, by the time he was born, the Jews no longer had their own country. There was no longer a son of David to sit on the throne. Right? They had been exiled from the land. First, the Assyrians came and deported uh, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, took them out, brought them into the Assyrian captivity, the Assyrian exile, and then 
And then the next two or two and a half tribes, depending on how you count them, were taken out of Judah by the Babylonians. And so the Jews were scattered around the world. And so sometimes, sometimes when we read about the remnant in Israel, we're thinking of those who are truly faithful as there were just a few uh, who did not sacrifice to Baal, who do not bow the knee to Baal. But there is the word remnant is being used differently in Micah chapter 5. In Micah chapter 5, the remnant are those who have been scattered amongst the nations, who were taken into exile and have been lost. It's important to understand, I think sometimes we lose sight of this, the 12 tribes of Israel were lost. Only a handful of people came back from 70 years after the initial Babylonian captivity began to resettle a tiny portion of land of of what was originally promised to them, of the land that was first controlled and conquered by David and by his son Solomon. Itsy-bitsy portion of land that 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 they only controlled at the pleasure of nations and empires far larger than them. And even now at the time of Jesus, they're not even really coming close to control. It's, not, it's, it's, it's an Idumean, it's a foreigner who's in charge in collusion with the chief priests and scribes, but still, they're lost, they're gone. They've become, they're lost to the nations. They become identified with the nations. But that means something significant that if, when the Christ comes, he will shepherd the remnant, that means he's going to gather his people together from out of the nations. But they are part of the nations. In other words, he is going to bring in the Gentiles, those who are not identifiably Jewish because they are no longer Jewish, like the wise men, people from afar, and when Micah says by prophecy, the remnant of Jacob shall be like a lion amidst the peoples, defeating the Assyrians, destroying them, there is none to deliver. There will be a conquest of the Assyrians and the Babylonians in all the nations. The Christ is going to have a victory, Micah says, over all the nations that have cast us down, that have humiliated us and destroyed us. The victory of the Christ. The victory of the Christ is when he calls out all those nations and he brings them to his people and makes them part of his people through the power of the Spirit. As we heard in the call to worship this morning from Isaiah 60, that as Christ is the light of the nations, now his church has become the light of the nations. And the nations are called in. And we who were strangers and exiles, aliens, have now been conquered by the shepherd who has drawn us to himself. So that those whom the Christ gathers The scattered sheep are going to be the faithful, whether they are Jew or Gentile. They're not marked out by DNA, 
right? By, by having the same genes as Abraham did somewhere buried in their genetic code. Rather, they are marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so the Christ is shepherd of a spiritual people. And the Christ gives his people peace. Again, why Micah chapter 5? He shall be their peace. The Christ gives his people peace whether they are the people who were there in Judah in Matthew chapter 2 or they are the people living in what was once Assyria or in what was once Babylon 2,000 years ago and what is now what, what are now even again different nations he will give his people peace People like you, people who have never been to Judah or Judea, let alone claim a heritage there. People who don't know what your background is, and it doesn't matter. He will give his people peace. Because we all once were aliens and strangers to the promises of the covenant. But now the Christ has come. He came into the world. He came in Bethlehem of Judah, born there in a stable, lived amongst us and died on the cross and was raised on the third day in your place. In your place for your sins, in your place he died, and in your place he was raised, so that your sins are no longer counted to you, and that now you have peace with God. But a peace which surpasses understanding, and I mean that quite literally. When we say a peace that surpasses understanding, I think sometimes people are like, ooh, that's, that's like totally good peace. But no, 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 no. Wrong. See, peace with God can be understood. God is not your enemy. God is at peace with you. He has laid down the sword because he no longer holds your sins against you. The peace that surpasses understanding is that now you have been adopted into his family. You have been made his children, but more. What surpasses all understanding, because we can understand adoption somewhat, we can understand being part of a family. We can even understand in some way, shape, or form, even if it's by analogy, even if it's by allegory, even if it's by simile or metaphor or whatever, what it means to be a child. But what we cannot understand is the peace that you have with God is a resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for sin to be destroyed and death to be brought to an end? What does it mean to be raised to be raised on the third day, let alone on the last day, and to be in glory and to spend eternity in the resurrection to come, in the glory of our Savior in His very presence. This cannot be understood. It cannot be comprehended. But yet now we know because it is His Spirit. His Spirit 
the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who has brought to you that comfort and peace, and who now dwells in you as your comforter and peace. The Christ gives his people peace. And that is why the wise men, the wise men sought him. That's also why we need to see and must understand that's also why he is rejected by the worldly minded. There is this radical distinction between those who will come to the Christ and those who will reject the Christ even though they should know him. Now, Herod, we know, is a bad guy. That's easy. But Herod, no, no, Herod didn't know what was going on. I mean, there's something not good for him was going on when the, when the wise men showed up, but, but he didn't have an answer for them when they said, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? He had to assemble the chief priests and the scribes and ask them. Herod was troubled, and I can understand why. Because Herod, as we've already discussed, Herod, Herod had no right to the throne. But all Jerusalem was troubled with him. All Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes. These are the pastors. These are the ruling elders. The general assembly, if you will of Jerusalem, Judea, of the people of God. I get annoyed when people want to talk about these folks as the religious leaders. Because religious leaders means not like us. We don't have a religion. We're Christians. But Christianity is a religion. And we have religious leaders. We don't call them chief priests and scribes. We call them pastors and elders, and that's what these guys were, okay? And that's important to see because these guys knew, they knew where the Christ was to be born, and they were troubled. They were sold out to the world. You want to know how sold out they were? They were leaders of a religion, leaders of the true and biblical faith, mind you, who knew it so well that when Herod said, hey, where is the Christ to be born? They said, duh, Micah chapter 5. Like any of you know what, what's in Micah chapter 5 before he showed up for worship this morning. They knew right away. They had that one down. Nobody went with the wise men. Wise men went to Bethlehem of Judah. These guys were troubled, and they stayed back with Herod in Jerusalem. What do you want? I asked that question. With, with, in all seriousness, 
because it's easy to say, I know what team I'm on. It's easy to say, Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, that's what I want. But then, these guys, chief priests and scribes, the pastors and ruling elders of their day, would have said the exact same thing. And yet, when the wise men showed up, they were troubled, and they did not go to Bethlehem of Judah to find the Christ. What do you want? Do you want worldly glory? Or do you want the peace which only comes from Christ? The Christ gives his people peace And so the kind of king, what kind of king is the Christ? The Christ is followed by worshipers. The wise men came to Israel to find the king of the Jews. Let's go back to the wise men. You know, I feel like I've spent a lot of time talking about everything except for the main characters of our story. So let's talk about these two or more wise men with their three gifts. At least we know how many gifts there were, even if we don't know uh, how many of them there were. Why did they come? Why did they come to Israel? Why did they come to Judah? They came to find the king of the Jews. Now that's interesting. Because they're not Jews. So they come because they've heard, they've heard somehow Somewhere, wherever it is they're from, the east, not particularly helpful. Um, but they've heard from this, these wise men of indeterminate number from an unknown location somewhere on our planet. They have heard about the Christ who is to be born the King of the Jews. They've known about his star which is really obscure. If you think Micah chapter 5 is obscure, at least you've heard it over and over and over again on Christmas Eve services. But, but these guys, these guys, it seems, are reaching pretty far into Numbers chapter 24. Uh, one of the prophecies of Balaam, where he says, I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Numbers 24, 17. There is a star. And these wise men, they are practitioners of the hard sciences. These are scientists. They're astronomers. And as somebody who, studies, who spent his whole life studying the humanities, I agree that people who study the hard sciences should be called magicians uh, and definitely not trusted. Uh, but that's, 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 that's who these guys are. They know their stuff. They know their stuff. And, so they, and they've come to find him. They've been looking for him. Not, not the people in, 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 in Jerusalem. They're there. They are right there. 
And they can't be bothered to go to Bethlehem. I know they didn't have cars then, but it just wasn't that far. It really wasn't. And these guys come from so far away that they come and say, well, the east. Yeah, I mean, why bother with a place name? Real, just the east. They've come from far away, so far, to find, to find the king of the Jews. And the only reason they could have come then was because God led them. God led them to Christ. He led them by exposing them in some way, shape, or form to the word of God out there, out there in the east, so they knew to look for a star. But that wasn't enough. So he led them to Jerusalem, to the chief priests and scribes who were able to give them the word, the Bible, from the Bible and interpret it correctly. And then through Herod of all people, the word of God was faithfully passed on as to where they were to go. I mean, there's a whole sermon there about the reliability of the Word of God, that even when it comes through wicked men, it's still the Word of God and can be relied upon. I'm not going to preach that sermon now, but it's worth thinking about. Because of the faithfulness of God. I want to underscore the faithfulness of God. But then, it is a direct revelation of the Spirit. The Spirit leads them by the star which appears to move and stands over the place where the child was. This is no longer, is no longer, despite all the nativity scenes, is no longer in the stable because given that Herod uh, gives the decree to kill children two years or younger, it's, we're, 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 we're within, we're, we're well past a year and coming up on two years since, since the birth of Jesus. So the family is still living in, in Bethlehem, but they come and they find him. And what do they do when they find him? When they get to the house? because he's living in a house now, not in a stable. Going into the house where they've been led by the Spirit of God, they immediately recognize him. And they fall down and worship him. And the treasures that they offer are treasures, sacrifices, rather, sacrifices of thanksgiving. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense and myrrh, gold, spices of great value, inestimable value that are given to Jesus, the child Jesus. This is worship. They are bowing down, they're falling on their faces, and they worship him because that is what the followers of Christ do. They worship him. What is a follower of Christ? What, is, what does it mean to recognize Christ as king? It's to worship him. That's the point. What did the wise men accomplish? They found Christ and they worshiped him. What was the legacy of Simeon, I know it's not the gospel, but Simeon, who waited his whole life to see the Christ. 
He worshiped him. What's the point of saying Christ is king? It's to worship him. It's to worship him. He is a king who does everything for you. He's not a king that we go out and do great things for. He is a king who rules over and defends you, who subdues and conquers all your your enemies and all of his enemies. He has conquered sin and death for you. He has given you an inheritance, an everlasting inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom which is to come in the new age, which is to dawn and very soon. He has given you all things and you follow him by worshiping him. This is your king. What does God do with his people? What does the Spirit of God do for his people who have come to worship him? He protects them. He sends them home by another way. They are protected from Herod. Warned in a dream, which is clearly a revelation of the Spirit, they depart and go to their own country by another way. We don't know what else happens to these men, to these travelers from afar, the king, the magi, the wise men, whatever name we give to them. But we know they were his people because the Holy Spirit brings God's people, whoever they are, to worship the king. Therefore, beloved, come. Come and worship. Come and worship the king. We have come from afar. Whoever you are, whoever you are, you're born as a child of Adam, born into sin and death, and yet you have been called, whatever your background, however many times you have come or not come to worship services in your life, you have been called here this morning. And everyone who comes into a worship service in some way, shape, or form comes because they've been drawn by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Whether savingly or not, there's a reason that people come, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not. But they're brought here, and you've been brought here, to hear the good news, but not just to hear the good news. You've been brought here to worship the king. Therefore, beloved, come. Come and worship. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks for your great mercy to us in Jesus Christ that as the wise men came to you of old, so we come to you now. We come to you having heard the good news. We come to you in reliance upon your work and upon your spirit, knowing that we bring neither frankincense nor gold nor nor myrrh, but we bring what we have to bring, which is ourselves, which is a sacrifice of our worship. And so receive us now, we pray, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our incarnated 
and crucified and risen Savior and Lord and King. Amen. <laughs>